I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, in the first of three shows for the 2018 Welcome Book Prize, here's Meredith Wadman on her book The Vaccine Race, and then Sigrid Rousing on her book Mayhem, a memoir. Meredith Wadman has covered biomedical research politics from Washington, D.C. for 20 years. She is on the staff of Science and has written for Nature, Fortune, The New York Times and The Wall Street Journal. A graduate of Stanford and Columbia, she began medical school at the University of British Columbia and completed medical school as a Rhodes Scholar at the University of Oxford. And Meredith is the author of The Vaccine Race, How Scientists Use Human Cells to Combat Killer Viruses, which is one of the shortlisted books for the 2018 Welcome Book Prize. Meredith, welcome to Little Atoms. I'm so glad to be with you. So how would you describe The Vaccine Race? Well, it's the story of some really amazing cells called WI-38 cells that were taken from the lungs of an aborted fetus, a fetus legally aborted in Sweden in 1962, and grown up in the lab and used as essentially miniature vaccine factories to make many vaccines, the most important among them, the rubella vaccine that uh, has essentially wiped out uh, rubella in the Western Hemisphere and, and is used virtually globally today. Rubella, which is also known as German measles, is devastating for fetuses if a pregnant woman is infected with the virus. And indeed, you start the book in the middle of a rubella epidemic and showing basically what it does to, to an unborn child. So give us a bit more detail about what it would do. Rubella essentially invades every fetal organ and is an equal opportunity destroyer. However, most commonly affected are eyes, ears, heart, and brains, so that in the middle of a historic epidemic in the early 1960s, tens of thousands of babies were born blind, deaf, intellectually disabled with those shrunken heads called microcephaly that we've seen more recently in Zika babies and also with congenital heart defects and many times with combinations of these conditions. What can't be quantified is the additional number of both uh, elective and spontaneous abortions that occurred and stillbirths also because of this rubella epidemic which hit British shores in 1963 and arrived in America one year later. So obviously at this time we already had vaccines. One thinks of the famous Jonas Salk polio vaccine. But how would these vaccines have been made at that time? 
they were made, the Salk and Sabin polio vaccines were made in cells from monkey kidneys. Monkeys were imported from countries like India by their tens of thousands and slaughtered, and their kidneys were harvested, and the cells from the kidneys were used to replicate the polio virus over and over until you had massive quantities of it that were then, in the salt case, killed with formaldehyde. And that was your polio vaccine, the resulting solution, and that was injected into, as we know, tens of millions of people in the late 1950s, and it was the great public health victory of the day. But it began to emerge that these monkey kidneys carried silent monkey viruses. It was not known if they were harmful to humans, but it was worrisome. And so in 1962, when a young ambitious biologist named Leonard Hayslick, working in Philadelphia at the Wistar Institute, derived these so-called WI38 cells from the lungs of an aborted fetus, it was hoped that they could become clean, safe vaccine factories. He went back, well, he through an emissary, the woman who had had the abortion was contacted and her health history was determined to be safe and, and the cells to be clean. Well, let's talk about Leonard Hayflick, first of all, as it's safe to say he's one of the heroes of this book. Tell us something about a bit more about who he was. Oh, he and still is. He'll turn 90 this May, in fact. He was an up-by-the-bootstraps, working-class Philadelphian. His parents had grown up, you know, one generation removed from utter destitution in the immigrant slums of South Philadelphia. He was extremely bright. He was ambitious. He was hired in 1958 to be a sort of household servant at the Wistar Institute, which a polio vaccine pioneer, a larger-than-life man named Hilary Kaprowski, had recently taken over. The Institute had been kind of moribund, and Kaprowski, who was a Polish emigre, this extremely erudite, brilliant virologist, took it over and recruited, oftentimes from Europe, world-class biologists to populate the rejuvenated institute. He saw Hayflick as, a, as I said, a household servant, someone who would grow cells and culture to provide to these brilliant biologists at the Wistar Institute. But Hayflick had other ideas and began making his own discoveries. The most important of these by far is that he discovered using fetuses obtained from just across the street at the hospital of the University of Pennsylvania, uh, he discovered that normal cells, when you grow them in lab dishes, are as mortal as you or I. They expire after usually about 50 cell divisions in the case of fetal cells. And this became known as the Hayflick limit. It's a hugely important observation in biology, and it really put Hayflick on the map as a, a force to be reckoned with. Now, listeners of this show will be familiar with HeLa cells, which famously came from Henrietta Lacks, and those cells are cancer cells. These cells are not. So what's the significance of that? What difference does it make? Well, I mean, regulators and vaccine makers would never have agreed to use cancerous cells to produce vaccines. I mean, the fear was that they would cause cancer in the vaccinees. And so having a mortal cell that was demonstrably not cancerous, and Hayflick demonstrated this over and over in many ways, it was a reassuring thing, at least to European regulators and companies. They proceeded apace beginning in 1962 after Hayflick derived these cells to use them to produce measles and polio and other vaccines. However, in the United States, there was one man in charge of access to the U.S. vaccine market. His name was Rod Murray. He worked at the National Institutes of Health, and he was judge and jury on whether a new vaccine could come to market. He didn't like Hayflick's fetal cells. 
He was afraid that they might, in fact, turn cancerous and harm vaccinees. And so he stood in the way, essentially, for 10 years of any vaccine made in these cells coming to the U.S. market. And it wasn't until he was put out to pasture that that began to change. Meanwhile, at the same time, there becomes a sort of bitter dispute between Hayflick and the the Worcester Institute over the ownership of these cells, or the possession of these cells, I should say. What happened? Oh, this is possibly the greatest bit of folklore in intellectual property history, at least in this country. Hayflick derived the WI-38 cells from the fetus of a woman, the woman I call in the book Mrs. X. Under a federal government contract, the National Institutes of Health was paying the Wistar in the person of Hayflick to derive these normal fetal cells for studies of aging in lab dishes because this was a new frontier now. Hayflick had demonstrated that cells aged and died in lab dishes. Biologists wanted more of these cells to study this phenomenon and to study also virology and what kinds of viruses could infect normal human cells and to do. So they were much in demand. And so throughout the early and mid-1960s, the NIH paid the Wistar Institute hundreds of thousands of dollars for Hayflick to continue to derive these and other cells, normal cells. And the small print in the contract said, at the end of this contract, any materials developed on the contract must be returned to NIH, which will retain title to those cells. Well, in 1968, Hayflick, tired of being treated as a second-class citizen at the Wistar Institute by its czar, Hilary Kaprowski, found a better job for himself at Stanford and announced that he'd be leaving in June. Well, in the early winter of that year, NIH, Hayflick, and Kaprowski and others sat down and basically agreed, although Hayflick says he was really in a command performance, he didn't want to do this, that all the cells that he had developed would revert to the NIH at the time of his departure, and that only 10 cell vials could be kept by himself and another 10 by the Wistar. So that was agreed. There was a memo drawn up, but Hayflick realizing that Hilary Kaprowski was now using these cells, which he had developed, to try to sell vaccine recipes to big drug makers and the cells themselves to make a bundle of money for the Wistar Institute. Hayflick discovered this, discovered Kaprowski had not informed him of this, and was outraged. And so he went quietly to the Wistar basement where the cells were stored. He loaded them all into a liquid nitrogen refrigerator, a portable refrigerator, and drafted on the back seat of his family Buick sedan alongside his kids when he drove off via the Grand Canyon to California that June. He left not a single vial of the original cells for the Wistar Institute or for NIH. Well, this obviously raised hackles both at Wistar and at NIH, but they kind of let it go. They just didn't pursue it until 1974 when Hayflick began a company called Cell Associates. It was arguably one of the very first biotech companies, but only he and his wife were shareholders. And in the name of Cell Associates, he began to sell some of these cells to vaccine makers. And in between 1974 and early 1975, he accrued $67,000 through these sales. NIH got wind of it. They sent out their chief investigator of waste, fraud, and abuse to examine Hayflick and his lab. And uh, things did not end well for Leonard Hayflick, let's put it that way. I don't want to give away the entire story. No, but I mean, it's no surprise to say that the Wisdom Institute and big drug companies do end up making, you know, billions of pounds from the products of these cells. But just tell us something about what this whole incident does for Hayflick's reputation. Well, initially, you see, he was operating in a time in which scientists were expected to be 
selfless, salaried public servants who did their science for love of it and for a modest salary. They weren't expected to be entrepreneurs and to turn their inventions into commercial companies. That all changed in the late 1970s and around 1980 with certain court decisions and laws that were implemented, at least here in the U.S. And it became a virtue then for a scientist to be an entrepreneur. But Hayflick in 1974 was just a bit ahead of his time. And many of his colleagues looked askance when it came out what he had been doing. And he was really in the academic wilderness for many years. It needs to be said that over the decades, his reputation has been restored. He's won many awards, particularly for his work in aging science. He's kind of a grand old man of aging science. And if you ask any young cell biologist today about Leonard Hayflick, they will know nothing about the incident with NIH and the WI-38 cells, and they will know everything about the Hayflick limit and his contribution to aging science. Now, WI-38 is instrumental in the development of vaccines for a number of diseases. Uh, You talk particularly in the book about rabies. Tell us something about the, the development of a rabies vaccine. Oh, this is such an important piece of what was done with WI-38 cells, because in the early 1960s, the vaccine against rabies was made in duck embryos, and it was not terribly effective. There were also other rabies vaccines that were made in, for instance, dried rabbit brains, but the problem with them is they could cause a life-threatening and sometimes fatal uh, allergic attack on the myelin that ensheaths the, the nerve cells of the central nervous system. So they were dangerous. So when someone was bitten by a possibly rabid animal, they were confronted with this terrible choice. Do I ask for an ineffective vaccine? Do I take a risk that I take the rabbit brain-derived vaccine and, and that might kill me by a side effect? Or do I just, you know, roll the dice and hope that the animal wasn't rabid that bit me? So there were regular deaths often of children uh, who were like backyard camping and got bitten by a rabid skunk in this country in the mid-60s. And so along came Hilary Kaprowski, the head of the Wistar Institute, who had a fascination, a lifelong fascination with rabies. And he decided to take WI-38 cells that Len Hayflick had just developed and to create a rabies vaccine with them. And this took several years of labor and tweaking and laboratory manipulations that didn't always go well. But by the mid-1970s, he, along with a couple of Worcester colleagues, had produced an eminently superior, safe, and effective rabies vaccine. And it was tried first in the villages of northwest Iran, where attacks by rabid wolves were very common. And the results of of that trial were so fantastic that it was very quickly licensed after that. So for particularly rural populations and and poor populations and children who tend to be the ones who suffer from rabies and and bites inflicted by rabid animals, this was literally a lifesaver. There's a number of interesting ethical debates within this story, not least the fact that obviously there's a lot of people who would disagree with the use of fetal cells in in any form of science. The ironic thing here, of course, being that women that contracted rubella would often receive abortions, and so using those fetal cells has obviously prevented a lot more abortions than would otherwise have happened, hasn't it? Yes, it's it's a very 
rich irony. And, and in fact, it really should be mentioned that the inventor of the rubella vaccine, Stanley Plotkin, who was a researcher and a pediatrician also at the Wistar Institute, just sort of up the stairs and around the corner from Hayflick, is really the one who made the vaccine and made it work in WI38 cells. Key to get hold of a rubella virus that would actually be grown in cells to make a vaccine by weakening it, by growing it through many generations in laboratories, in the lab rather than in human beings. He captured the rubella virus he used from yet another aborted fetus. Now, how did this come about? Well, he was the only doctor in the Philadelphia area known during this massive epidemic in 1964 to be able to conduct a laboratory test that would tell a worried pregnant woman whether or not she'd had rubella. Women were terrified and his office was inundated with pregnant women and with couples saying, please, could you run this test for me? And when he did, he would ask the couple, if the test came back positive and if they decided to abort, he would ask those couples, could I obtain your fetus? I'm trying to capture a rubella virus that could be used to make a vaccine. And in fact, in the course of 1964, he received 31 such fetuses from rubella-associated abortions, and it was from one of these that he captured the virus that to this day is used globally after having been weakened by Plotkin and culture to protect uh, infants and toddlers uh, against the rubella virus. We should also say that this book contains many stories of experimentation in the early days of vaccine research that, well, we could say they certainly wouldn't pass any ethics boards today, would they? No, there was a very different ethic around research experimentation on human beings in the two decades, at least in this country, after World War II. Uh, there was a sense of medical entitlement to usually institutionalized and powerless populations, be they prisoners, be they orphans, be they newborns on hospital charity wards. And so many vaccines and therapies were tested in these kinds of people who were utterly powerless to give consent in the era. And that includes the rubella vaccine. Just one more question then, Meredith. What does it mean for you that the book has been shortlisted for the Wellcome Prize? Well, I'm deeply honoured and thrilled beyond belief, really. It's such an affirmation. One doesn't write a book in order for affirmation. You write it because you fall in love with the subject. And it was the journey and not the destination, as it were, to use a cliche. But that being said, it's, it's just wonderful to know it's being received by people who appreciate it. It's a, it's a huge honor. So I've been talking to Meredith Wadman. We've been talking about the vaccine race, how scientists use human cells to combat killer viruses, which, as we've already mentioned, is shortlisted for the 2018 Welcome Book Prize. Meredith, thank you so much for talking to me. Thanks so much for inviting me. It was a real pleasure. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Emily Mayhew, and you're listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. Sigrid Rousing is the editor of Granta magazine and the publisher of Granta Books. She is the author of two previous books, History, Memory and Identity in Post-Soviet Estonia, and Everything is Wonderful, which was shortlisted for the Royal Society of Literature on Darty Prize. Now the author of Mayhem, a memoir, which is shortlisted for the 2018 Welcome Book Prize. Sigrid, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you so much. Can you describe what Mayhem is about? Yes, so Mayhem is about addiction. It's about addiction as a family disease. Um, it's an attempt to find the words for what happened in my family. My brother was a drug addict, so was his wife. She died. He survived. And it's really an attempt to describe what it is to have addiction in the family and the kind of madness that draws you into it and the kind of I don't like the word codependency, but in some ways it's a description of, of, of that state of anxiety, of guilt, um, of blame flying around, um, and of uh, a kind of obsession of being on high alert all the time for years, you know. And indeed, you say codependency, and really yeah. the book explores multiple levels of that. Obviously your brother and his wife, but the wider family and society as a wider group itself. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I write about addiction as being in the no man's land, you know, between bad behavior, essentially, and, and mental illness. And I think it is a syndrome which is very lost in, you know, in between medical science and, and popular opinion. You know, it's the only syndrome I know of where people so steadfastly ignore medical research and medical opinion and, and have their own views about it. They have their own views about causation. Um, they have their own views about recovery. And I, I just wanted to kind of a, show something of addiction as a family disease, um, and B, something about, you know, the conundrum of addiction, the mystery of it. Because I, I think that as a society, we're not, we're not dealing with addiction in a very good way. The title, it's called Mayhem, and that word has a, has a wider meaning than the obvious, doesn't it? Yeah, mayhem um, is an old English term for the crime of maiming. And so if I cut off your arm, I'm guilty of mayhem. And I thought it was a very appropriate title because if you are a family member in addiction, you are to some degree psychologically maimed by that process. The book also becomes an exploration of the idea of culpability as well. And again, we could look at both the addict and the people around the addict and again, society as a whole. But you're quite hard on yourself in this book. Would people say that? I mean, in fact, 
what I try to do in the book is create a character, i.e. myself, who is in the craziness, you know, so, so that, you know, I may seem hard on myself, but that's a deliberate, that was a deliberate device. And similarly, I created my husband as a foil to that. So he represents the voice of sanity and the voice of reason because he's not sucked into the craziness. Um, and I wanted to show the difference between us in that sense. I wanted to show somebody who was sane and on the outside and who constantly said, well, this is just insane. You know, what, what is happening? What are you doing? Why do you feel that? Let's just take a break from this. And I wanted to show myself as somebody who was, who was entirely sucked into it. And again, let's widen that out to wider society as well, because the book becomes a, a meditation on how, you know, the various ways in which we we view addiction and addicts and how that feeds into how we deal with it. Yeah. I mean, I think many people just feel compassion for addicts, and I think we all should feel compassion. But I also think that compassion isn't everything, because addicts really are incapable of functioning in society. Professor Strang uh, at London University has done some very interesting research showing that either he was experimenting on a, on a method of a, a form of rehab, if you like, though not uh, residential, where he was giving heroin, diminishing quantities of heroin, plus very strong social care and very strong psychological support to addicts. And that was shown to be a very effective way of slowly weaning the addicts off. And I think the social care is such an interesting component of that. Um, you know, because you're talking about a group of people, I'm talking about heroin addicts now, a group of people who really are incapable of doing all the little things that our ordinary anxiety drives us to, i.e. pay bills, clean up the flat, take care of children, organize food, um, cook for ourselves, you know, all the self-care and family care that we ordinarily do for ourselves, heroin addicts really are not capable of doing because heroin is such a powerful tranquilizer that it removes that level of everyday anxiety, that, that sense of, I really must get onto this now, you know. The book also becomes an exploration of the intersection of addiction and privilege we could say and I'm, and I'm not even here referring necessarily to your own family's unique position but western society in itself in the book you touch on the idea of addiction in the developing world and of course that comes from you know all the way along the sort of drug routes that drugs are, are smuggled across that we see destruction and violence and addiction mm -hmm. and of course fundamentally that exists to feed the west's need for the want for these drugs and of course you know a person who gets addicted to drugs in the west if they're in the position to do so can go to rehab and of course somebody along the you know along the, the silk road or whatever is not in that position mm -hmm. i mean one of the purposes of having that um vignette from mombasa in the book was to show that actually it's not that difference you know and i'm not completely convinced that privilege makes such a big difference. I think that, you know, one of the interesting things about addiction as a syndrome is that it is remarkably similar um, worldwide. In other words, it's, it's, it's not a culturally constructed syndrome. It really is a medical syndrome. And so the people I was describing in um, uh, Mombasa seem to me to be very similar to addicts I've known, including my brother and his wife. 
I, I would say my brother, really, because if I wasn't a heroin addict, so that, that makes a difference. But So that's one aspect of the question. But, but also to the question of rehab, it is one of the things I, I try to do in the book is problematize what rehab is. You know, we talk about it as though we really know what it is, as though there's certainty about, you know, what works best. But in fact, you know, I, I say in the book, this is, this is an industry driven by desperation, not by research. And there's a very wide range of rehab type therapies out there. So it's not a panacea. That's one thing I want to really communicate. The book tells an incredibly powerful story, but that's helped by the fact that it's beautifully structured and written as well. Can you tell me about how the book itself came together a little? Yeah, thank you. It started, I started writing um, as soon as Eva was found. Um, and I was really writing just to myself because I, um, it's, it's kind of what I do to, to make shock and grief. And then I was gripped by a real desire and need to know what had happened because at that time in the story, we, we really didn't know anything. And then I started writing timelines and I started figuring it all out. And, and then I wrote one version of the book, which was really for the children so that they would know what happened. And then I started thinking, you know, if the kind of cliche about addiction being a family disease is really true, you know, then I think it is important that family members also have a voice in this and that somebody describes, you know, the cause of an illness. And in our case, you know, so much of this was already in the public domain. And so it was a very public story already. There was even an opera written about it in Sweden which, you know, objectified all of us uh, and made something else of the story, you know, made it a kind of sentimental, sentimentalized uh, kind of lost son story. And I just thought there were so many memoirs written by addicts and there were so few memoirs written by family members of addicts because it's such a frightening thing to do. You know, you, you're constantly worried that you might rock the boat, that, you know, you might cause a relapse, that the what have you done question is never absent. And I think that fear is very much part of the syndrome of being a family member of addiction. You know, you constantly avoid, you're constantly asking yourself what you have done to cause this. That's true for parents, but it's actually also true for siblings. And, and I think particularly for older siblings. Now, the obvious question to ask here would be to what extent writing the book helped you you know with your feelings towards the situation but at the same time I also wanted to ask about you're trained as an anthropologist Mm -hmm. and I wonder to what extent that training also perhaps helps with being able to write about this situation. Yes such an interesting question because in a way you know I faced very similar questions uh, when I was writing my memoir about my time on the collective farm in Estonia. I was there for a year in 93-94 that was the basis for my PhD. And then I wrote a book based on my PhD. And then many years later, I wrote a memoir about it. And even then, I had no sense that the people in the village would ever really read it, you know, because they were very culturally so far removed from us at the time of my fieldwork. But now, of course, they're not, you know. And the book indeed was translated to Estonian. And people in the village did read it. And some people loved it. And some people didn't love it, you know. And so the question of how do you describe people in a way that is respectful and not overly objectifying 
um, is one that is extremely current in anthropology and has been, you know, for the, for the last, I mean, I, I would say since the 70s and 80s, that that has been the question in anthropology. And so it was very much a question I had in mind when I was writing my book, you know, how do you, how do I describe people who I love? And how do I describe our family? How do I represent it, you know, that, that, uh, you know, without making it unduly, you know, beautiful or sentimental, but also not, uh, I wanted it to be true, in other words. Um, you know, the question of representation of others is a, it's a very tough one right now. Just one more so, question for me then. What does it mean for you that the book has been shortlisted for the Welcome Prize? Oh, it's wonderful. I'm, I'm very pleased about that. I'm kind of particularly pleased because it's such a serious prize in, in the medical domain, as it were, you know, so I'm very, I'm very happy about that. Okay, so I've been talking to Sigrid Rousing. We've been talking about Mayhem, a memoir, which is shortlisted for the 2018 Welcome Book Prize. Sigrid, thank you so much for taking the time to share it with me. Thank you. Pleasure. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89Up, and the podcast is hosted by Acast. Find us on iTunes, and if you like the show, please do leave us a review. You can find old interviews, new journalism and more on our website, littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening.